You are listening to the Sermon Podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's sermon is preached by Ken Pine. You can turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 10. Continue the series uh, that Pastor Scott's taking us through in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, a series that he has uh, entitled A Pessimistic Optimism. Um, when we look at this world under the sun, so to say, there is a lot to be pessimistic about, isn't there? I mean, what, what, are, we, what are we hoping? And people try to put their uh, find their hope in so many different things as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes and we realize all of that is vanity, it's empty, it does not satisfy. And every once in a while, um, the preacher, who we understand the author of the book to be Solomon, every once in a while he just interjects a little statement that shows where the hope really comes from. It comes from having a proper perspective on life viewed in fear of God and viewed in obeying his word. So a pessimistic optimism. And today, um, I've titled this uh, sermon from Ecclesiastes 10, The Fragrance of Wisdom and the Stench of Folly. If you want to be a little realistic, you could just ask, how do you smell today? But if that offends you, don't think about that. Just think about the fragrance of wisdom and the stench of folly. Um, this chapter, um, as one writer has said, contains probably the most loosely connected material in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the divisions between the individual sections um, may seem arbitrary. Um, there's not really a carefully constructive argument that you, as you might find in some other passages, but includes a variety of maxims and proverbs and comparisons and exhortations. And um, sometimes that... Uh, you know, lack of connectiveness uh, can frustrate some readers because they want to see the continuity of everything that's there. But uh, as one uh, commentator said, it's sort of like life itself, you know, in which one thing runs together um, without any obviously point, obvious, things run together without any obvious point of connection. But through this, the preacher is making a very clear contrast between two entirely different ways to live, the wise way and the foolish way. And Solomon is saying, here is the reality of life, and there really is only one way to deal with it. He's already hinted at it in some other places in the book, and he's uh, moving toward his climax in chapter 12, where we will really see what his conclusion to the end of all things is. But um, what is said here in chapter 10 about wisdom and folly points again to um, the main lesson of Ecclesiastes, and that is the need to face life as it really is and take our life day by day from the hand of a sovereign God, fearing him and walking in his ways. So as we work through this passage, uh, the question to ask is, am I living wisely or foolishly? Is the fragrance of wisdom permeating my life? Or is the stench of folly is what 
is evident. So there's uh, 10 wisdom principles that we'll look at. Uh, you could find more, you could find less, but this is, um, I didn't really try to come up with 10. That's just how it worked out. But here are 10 different wisdom principles. Verse 1, it says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The point here is that just a little folly ruins wisdom. The illustration that the preacher is using here is of a person who makes perfume. Um, perhaps it's in a jar um, of some sort. And flies are attracted to that perfume. Flies who have been who knows where, right? And um, these flies die in the perfume jar. And it doesn't take long before the stench of those dead flies is more powerful than the fragrance of that jar of perfume. Now, in comparison, that jar of perfume, there's a lot more perfume in that jar than there are flies that are at the top that are causing the smell. But the odor of the dead flies overpower or outweigh the fragrance of the perfume. And the preacher is using this illustration to then say, a little folly. Now, folly is what foolish people do, or it's what people who are trying to be wise do when they mess up. A little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. What's he saying? He's saying wisdom is sweet, like perfume, but it doesn't take much foolishness to turn that sour because folly stinks. Folly is so powerful that a little of it, like a bad smell, can overwhelm large amounts of wisdom. All it takes is one rash, world, one rash word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure, or one angry outburst to spoil everything. You can think about maybe times in your life. You love the Lord, you're seeking to build a reputation. In a sense, you have a good fragrance, the fragrance of wisdom coming out. But a little bit of sin can really wreck that, can it? And then the stench that is associated with our name because of what we did becomes apparent. You think of David, King David, a man after God's own heart, who because of his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, had that stench attached to his name the rest of his life. And maybe we can think of right now of areas in our life where we know we are vulnerable to folly, um, to act foolishly, uh, to stink it up, so to say. And um, hopefully we realize how we need to be on our guard so that we don't do that and that we confess our sins, our folly to the Lord when we commit them. And that we realize that we live in a world that does not fear God and his ways, that values folly over wisdom. So we have to be careful of those dead flies uh, of folly that seek to spoil the fragrance of wisdom that we want to be coming from our lives. So just a little folly ruins wisdom. In verse 2, we see that wisdom and folly are headed in two different directions. It says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart 
to the left. If you have some older translations, it actually says incline to the right hand and fool's heart to the left hand. So apologies to those who you who are left-handed, including my wife, um, but uh, that's not a slam against uh, left-handed people. It's just the way that they spoke of things. You go to the right, and that's the right way to go. You go to the left, that's not the right way to go. And going to the right was the way of wisdom. Going to the left was going the way of the fool. And the comparison that the preacher is making in this uh, verse is, is really quite simple, isn't it? I mean, there's two types of people. There's wise people and there's foolish people. There's two paths that people go on. They go on the way of wisdom or they go on the way of the fool. And other places, even in Ecclesiastes, as Pastor Scott has gone through it, have you know give us indication as to what these ways are. But I think of um, back in Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse twelve, it talks about those who fear God and those who do not, and it makes this statement. It says, "It will be well with those who fear God." That's the way of the to the right, the way of wisdom. And as you look at this verse, what is it that inclines a wise man to go to the right and a fool to go to the left? It says a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. A fool's heart. It's what's in our heart, what's in our inner being that shows which way we are going. And so I think we need to ask ourselves today, which way is our heart leaning? Is it leaning to the right or is it leaning to the left? Is it leaning toward God and his ways of wisdom? Or is it leaning to the left in the way what would be foolish? Is it leaning toward temptation? Or is it leaning away to the right, away from temptation? Is it leaning toward an appetite for God's word? Or is it leaning away where God's word isn't even regarded? Is it serious about sin? The way of wisdom deals with sin and seeks to uh, um, live according to the ways of God. Or is it leaning towards sin, the way of the fool? Um, is it drawing closer to people of God because you love them and you value the the fellowship and the um, camaraderie that you can have together, or do you find yourself going off by yourself, or even hanging out with the wrong crowd, as a foolish person would do? See, the wise man's heart leads him aright, and the fool's heart leads him astray, it says. So are you leaning in the right direction? Is the fragrance of wisdom coming from your heart today? That's the question that the preacher is asking. And then the third principle that we see is that fools lack sense, and everyone knows it. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. I like this definition of a fool one who seems to be the only person that he does not know that he is a fool. Because that's how 
foolish people are. They want to come across as if they have, you know, all the answers and, you know, listen to me type thing, and yet um, everyone knows that what they're sharing and what, uh, what they say is foolish. It says that they lack sense. He lacks sense. Uh, he's he's um, unreasonable. He's lacking in sound judgment. Um, and when it says in verse 3, that, at the end of verse 3, that he says to everyone that he is a fool, it's not necessarily that you know he has a sign on himself saying, I'm a fool, I'm a fool, or he's calling out on the road, hey, I'm everyone, I'm a fool. No, that's not what it's implying. What's implying is that just by the things that he does say and the things that he does do, everyone knows. That's a fool. Um, he's a person who will follow the path and says this is the way to go even when that blacktop gives way to gravel and gravel gives way to dirt and dirt gives way to rock and debris. And yet he'll keep plunging ahead and say, hey, I know this is the right way. And everyone else is saying, no, 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 no. That's not right. So how do we gain sense about life, in life and about life? Well, I think we would say the main way we get sense is from God's Word, from following His path on the road and not the one that we uh, know nothing about, yet we keep going down. And so the preacher is saying, don't be a fool. Uh, don't be the type of person that um, refuses to lis uh, listen to constructive criticism or ignores what godly people are trying to say or disregards what the Word of God teaches, but instead, instead is saying, I know the way, I know the way, follow me. And he's leading us on a road to rocks and debris. And... You know, it says that um, every he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he, he is a fool. People know. People know. And we can't think that we're going to fool people into thinking, you know, that uh, we're, we're good, we know what we're doing if we don't have the wisdom of God coming from us. We're certainly not fooling God. So we have to ask, what would people say about us? Is the fragrance of wisdom evident as people are around us or would there be the stench of foolishness that people see as they listen to us and interact with us? Then we come to the fourth principle. Um, wisdom will counter the anger of rulers with calmness. Um, do you deal with any angry people? From time to time, I'm sure you do. Okay. And verse 4 says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now, this specific situation is with a ruler who gets angry at you, it says. So someone in authority, whatever that might be. And this is giving advice on how to deal with that ruler. And it says when the king's anger or when the ruler's anger arises, um, the picture is that 
you are to retain your composure or calmness. And it says, uh, don't leave your place. So instead of leaving your post saying, I quit, I'm out of here, forget you, whatever, it's saying the wise person stays in place. Why? For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So it enables that, it enables you as a wise person to provide soft answers that can turn away wrath, as Solomon says in Proverbs. We are to counter the king's anger with gentleness. And in this way, the problem can be smoothed over, or at least there's a better potential for the problem to be smoothed over. It's encouraging the wise person to use the power of self-control to offset the abuse of power displayed in the temper tantrum of your superior. And I think this would also imply that whatever you do, do not behave in kind. Because when someone rants and raves at us in anger, what do we want to do? We want to get angry back, right? And this text is saying, no, that's not the right way to do it. Now, it's possible we're not told that, you know, there could be the scenario included here that... Um, that the king or the ruler, the superior, is angry because indeed we have something, we have done something that is foolish. And his or her response is just to get angry at us because of what we do. So how do we respond? With more foolishness? By getting angry back at them because they're angry with us? No, that's not what the text is saying, is it? Um, and in that situation, we should remain calm while we ask for forgiveness and um, and ask, uh, seek to make amends. A soft answer turns away wrath. But whatever the case, don't answer anger with anger. Don't leave, don't quit. Instead, answer anger with calmness. Because that is the way of wisdom, as the preacher is saying here. Then we come to Another principle that is that foolish leaders will put unqualified people in places of leadership. Foolish leaders will put unqualified people in places of leadership. Um, let me read verses 5 to 7. It says, There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler, Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So as in other places in Ecclesiastes where Solomon makes observations of things that he has seen under the sun, you know, things that are realities here in the world that we live in, he says there's been an error. He sees an error. And it's an error that is done by someone who is in charge, a superior, a ruler, could be a king. And it's called an evil thing. So it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a good thing, obviously. And he says that folly is set in many high places. Now folly, he's talking about foolish people. And so he's saying that foolish people are being set in high places whereas the rich are sitting in a low place. And so as Solomon is observing what's happening, he's saying 
the fools who should be given no responsibility and avoided at all costs are being given positions of authority and responsibility. While those who are called rich in this context, who are in Solomon's eyes, the ones who are deserving of those positions and able to handle those positions, they are given lowly positions. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, you know, who should be riding the horses? Well, it should be the princes, uh, not the slaves in that context. And he's saying this is an error. This is an evil. This is folly. And the reason that I think that he sees it as folly is because these positions were not assigned wisely on the basis of merit, but most likely they were assigned foolishly on the basis of a ruler's impulse or his unpredictability. And the value of wisdom is negated. The wisdom that could be gained from having the right people in the right positions is not happening. And so therefore an evil folly has occurred. Does this happen today? (laughs) Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It does. And you know what? We have to understand that life will continue to be unfair and power will continue to corrupt and that's a reality in life. And I think it reminds us, for one, to pray for our leaders. It reminds us to pray to God for intervention and It reminds us to pray that in areas that we have leadership, where people are, let's say, under our influence, under our uh, responsibility, pray that we will be wise leaders in how we handle things. But foolish leaders will will put unqualified people in places of leadership. And we need to just pray to God for help as those things happen. Um, Solomon doesn't give answers. He just says, this is how things are. And we have to realize, okay, as we live life in the fear of the Lord, what is our response to that reality in life? Well, it's to live life in the fear of the Lord, to obey him and to pray to him. Now he switches subjects somewhat abruptly as he goes on in um, verses 8 to 11. Uh, I think we will all enjoy this, especially if you're a Murphy's Law type person or you you think those kind of things happen to you. But accidents will happen. Perhaps, perhaps wisdom will help, could help. Verses 8 to 11, it says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So, have you ever been involved in a project where it just doesn't go well? Um, Maybe because you really didn't know what you were doing in the first place. And of course... um, you didn't read the directions to help you try to figure it out. Um, or um, maybe you were following the directions and had a good plan to get the job done. 
and then you trip over the paint can that was probably in a place it shouldn't have been, and you spill a gallon of paint over the floor. Those kinds of things happen, don't they? Sometimes a little bit of wisdom might help in those situations. Uh, definitely a, um, a lack of caution um, can prove costly. But notice the examples that are given in verses 8 to, eight to 9. The completion of what would be considered everyday tasks. The digging of pits. Uh, the demolition of walls. The quarrying of stone. The splitting of logs. That these activities result not in satisfaction and well-being, but in injury. Um, you know, the walls of stone, um, remember they didn't have mortar in them, most likely. And so easily they, they could be habitations for snakes to be there. Um, stones can dislodge unexpectedly in a quarry where somebody is working and cause harm or splitting logs. Definitely lots of accidents can happen in doing that. And you come to verse 10 and it talks about you know, in log splitting, a man can either use wisdom and sharpen his axe before he cuts the wood, or he can just exert more energy with a dull axe. What would wisdom say you should do? Sharpen the axe, right? And the key statement there is in verse 10, but wisdom helps one to succeed. In these areas that are being talked about it, it's basically saying, you know, we use these uh, expressions, work smart, um, work wise, <laughs> uh, plan ahead, anticipate obstacles. Because wisdom's value is lost if wisdom is not applied. Because wisdom says sharpen the axe. So sharpen the axe if you want to be wise. And when should wisdom be applied? Well, Sooner than later, uh, <laughs> it helps the sooner you do it. Because verse 11 sort of shows us that acting too slowly, uh, foolish delay will come back to bite you. <laughs> if the servant bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. And I don't know a whole lot about snake charming or anything like that, but I think the context is saying, you know, if you know you have some snakes you've got to deal with, deal with them ahead of time. Do it quick. Don't just wait around and see if you really need to because uh, the snake will come and bite you. And I think if we take, um, you know, especially verses 10 and 11 together, um, we, we see why we need God's wisdom. Because, you know, sometimes we need to prepare. We need to anticipate so that we avoid some of the issues. But sometimes we need to act right away before it's too late. And that's where wisdom comes in, knowing the difference. When do I need to get, you know, prepare and think through this and plan? But when do I need to, hey, I just got to do it right now. We're, we're, we're going for it. And so how are you applying wisdom to the everyday tasks of life? I know one thing I try to do, and I can't say I do it all the time, but one thing I try to do when I'm doing those kind of projects and so on is uh, to pray for God's help and wisdom before I do those things because uh, to me that's a wise thing to do because uh, God can uh, um, put things in our hearts and our minds to anticipate things or just to help us through those situations. 
but wisdom helps one to succeed. Now, when you're talking about wisdom and folly, wisdom and foolishness, you would expect at some point a conversation about the speech of people. And so here it is from Solomon in verses 12 to 15, where we see the words of the wise are gracious, the words of fools are many and self-destructive. Let me read the verses there. It says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. We see that um, you know, the character of one's talk is what is called the acid test of wisdom. Remember how James said you know, that our tongue is like, this, like a small rudder on a ship, and that rudder steers the ship wherever it goes, and so is how the tongue works with us. And in this context, it says in, at the beginning of verse 12 that the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Uh, some translations read, the words of a wise man are gracious. In other words, the things that he speaks, he's a very gracious person in his speech. The way it's translated here in the ESV and, and in some other texts, it more corresponds to what's being said about the fool and how what you say impacts you, um, perhaps a little bit more than what it, how it comes across to others although both are really uh, connected. But here it's saying that a wise man's words will win him grace or favor in the eyes of other people. He'll be well received by others. He'll be in good standing with others because of, of his words and what he says. So we want to be that type of person, right? We want to be the type of person where our words are gracious and where our words are well received by others to where we have a good standing, to, you know, where someone says he's a well-spoken person. He's, he speaks graciously. And now, in the rest of this section here, it all concentrates on the fool, which I, just, I find is interesting. You have one line about the wise person and then you have all these other lines about the fool. And, um, you know, sometimes writers do that on purpose. I think it just uh, reminds us um, about how problematic the fool is. We have a lot more to say about him that needs to be said about him than we do about the wise person. And what do we see about the, the fool's speech? It says, the lips of a fool consume him. His speech hurts himself. They get him in trouble. Now that hasn't happened to any of you, has it? <laughs> Where our words have gotten us in trouble? Oh yeah, big time. It can happen. But if a fool gives a speech, and at the beginning, as according to verse 13, if at the beginning it sounds like nonsense, the preacher is saying, wait till you get to the end of his speech. Because it is evil madness. 
It's not just madness, it's evil madness. I mean, it's, it's going to a bad place. And I was just reminded as I was thinking through that, you know, Proverbs 10.19, another book that Solomon wrote where he said, where words are many, sin is not absent. I think we need to be reminded of that. And the fool here is seen to be as just an idle talker, you know, talk, 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 talk. You know, he's already known to be a fool, but by the time it gets to the end, it's, it's evil madness. I remember um, a saying that my gym teacher in 7th and 8th grade, it's funny what you remember, but I remember this. He had a saying on his bulletin board, and some of you have probably heard something like this. Uh, Better to be quiet and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And uh, this person that's being talked about here is opening his mouth, opening his mouth, and it's very obvious that he is a fool. And um, rather than listen to others, it says in verse 14, a a fool multiplies words. Uh, He talks incessantly about subjects that he really doesn't even know about because who can know about the future and so on, and, and yet he babbles on. Listen to me. I know the answer. Seems like the number of his words are in inverse proportion to the extent of his understanding. So he just talks more about it. So so maybe you'll think he knows something when really he doesn't. And what's implied here, I think, is, you know, it doesn't say anything about the wise person in contrast here, but I think what's implied is that, you know, the wise person, although um, he does not control the times at all. He at least knows that he does not, and therefore he just remains quiet. And his toil is um, not the wearisome business that is endured by the fool. Because you go on to verse 15, and it says, The fool, um, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. The fool it's saying is so senseless that he doesn't know his way back home. You say, that's pretty crazy. But it's, he's sort of characterized as someone who babbles on and on and on, and yet when it comes to something important, like knowing how to get home, he doesn't know how to get home. But he can talk. And he's wearied by work, it says. The toil of a fool wearies him. Which is interesting because it's sort of implied, isn't it? Toil, the, his work wearies him, but talking a lot, that doesn't weary him. He'll just keep doing it and doing it. Someone, a commentator said, foolish speech from a foolish mind leads to a foolish view of life and a foolish way of life. Just think about that. That's so true. Foolish speech from a foolish mind leads to a foolish view of life in a foolish way of life. And by contrast, the wise person who trusts in God, he's not worried about speculating on things that only God knows. And therefore, there's freedom in that because you can concentrate on the things that God wants you to concentrate on. What might be considered simple things in life, as Solomon has talked about in Ecclesiastes, eating, drinking, working, Enjoying the good gifts of God that he has given. Knowing how to get home. 
And through this section, I think the reader is, and that includes us, is left to ponder all the ways that our mouths have gotten us into trouble. (laughs) And to just uh, realize that we need to nurture our hearts with the things of God so that then what comes out of our mouth are things that are wise and not foolish. We need a steady diet of the Scriptures to keep us um, from nurturing silly ideas as a foolish person does. So we have to ask, does the fragrance of wisdom come from our lips? Or is it the foul odor of foolish talk? The dead flies. And now, as we go on, verses 16 and 17, the preacher comes back to talking about rulers. He talked about rulers in verse 4, and now he comes back and he says, Blessed is a nation that has wise rulers who are mature and self-disciplined, whereas it is a starry state for a nation to have foolish rulers who are immature and undisciplined. Verse 16, it says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the sort, is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. The preacher contrasts here the sorry state of a nation whose leaders are incompetent and undisciplined with the fortunate state of a nation who has leaders that are competent and disciplined. In a sense, uh, there's more criteria, but in this context, he gives two criteria for national wisdom. If a nation wants to be wise, the first thing they will do is they will have a mature leader. Uh, The word child there that's used for the nation that is given a woe, the word child, just it, it implies immaturity. Um, so you don't have to necessarily be a child. He's not necessarily referring to someone of a young age, um, but he's referring to someone who is immature. But the happy nation, the blessed nation, is the nation that has a king, uh, is a son of nobility. In other words, one who is mature, has been properly trained to lead, to be wise. And it's disastrous to have a king who is immature and no, has no idea how to govern. And then the second criteria of national wisdom that he talks about here is self-control. Because what's happening to the ones with the immature leaders? It says, your princes feast in the morning. Uh, they're drinking, (laughs) getting in a drunken stupor in the early hours of the day. And if a king and his administrators view their power as an opportunity for self-indulgence, obviously that nation is in big trouble. And instead of getting up in the morning with the goal to improve and defend their country, um, what's described here is uh, people, leaders that live in a drunken stupor. They skip over their work on behalf of others and move immediately to rewarding themselves with pleasures and so on. But with a mature leader, in verse 17, 
He says, your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. They eat at the right time and for the right reasons. And it's not like they can't enjoy pleasure, enjoy the reward of hard work and of maybe winning victories and so on. But the enjoyment of life's pleasures are the outworking of a position of wisdom and strength. And so they enjoy their pleasures, but at the right time, after the right work has been accomplished. And again, you know, as we saw in verse 4, we look at this and we say, yeah, we see some of that around. Um, We see, again, you know, nations who, you know, rulers who are not mature, who are not disciplined, And I think it just reminds us again, as God-fearers, people who want to walk in God's way, that we pray, we desire wise government, that we pray for our leaders to be wise and um, not to be fools, because we know how that will reflect on us. Then the ninth uh, principle, verses 18 and 19, the folly of laziness is a crippling liability. The wisdom of hard work provides money for enjoying life. Um, I'm taking these verses together. There's a lot of uh, discussion about how these two verses, if they go together, how they go together, where they, what else they go together with. But let me read them. It says, though the sloth, through, uh, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, that's laziness, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. So what is uh, verse 18 referring to? Well, there's work that needs to be done. Yeah, I'll get to it. Sometime. No, not today. No, I don't feel like it. Slothfulness. Laziness. And people who sit around doing nothing will end up with a disaster on their hands. (laughs) And the roof will be sinking in and it will be leaking and there will be problems. Not acknowledging the the wisdom that would say, you know, if you do a little effort now, you'll save yourself a lot of effort, cost, and problems later. And I think we'd have to say, you know, slothfulness is a big problem in our day and age. People don't want to work. People don't want to do what they're supposed to do. And the preacher is highlighting the foolishness of that mindset. But then we come to verse 19. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life and money answers everything. And we see the use of money being here to provide for enjoyment provide for feasting feasting and laughter, wine and money, it says. Now you can imagine some might struggle with this verse as exactly how to, you know, respond to it because is Solomon saying, you know, that money's everything and that, you know, therefore our focus should be on money and I think we have to say no, that's not what he's saying because he's already said back in chapter 5, that he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. And that is true. 
But here he's not trying to imply, I don't think, that money is the end all, the ultimate satisfaction. He's just saying that in contrast to the slothful, lazy person, if you work hard and care for your belongings, um, then overall you will have sufficient money for joyful feasting at its proper time. And to me that makes a lot of sense. And he's already said that in other places. And um, even last week's uh, passage that Pastor Scott preached through in uh, chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So Solomon was all about, you know, enjoying life, but in a proper context under the fear of God. So here, I believe, in verse 19, is a description of the trusting and joyful life that comes from the fear and love of God. And we work hard, we earn our money, we can use it for the right things and enjoy life. And I think the question we have to ask then is the fragrance of wise, hard work permeating from you? Or is it the stench of foolish laziness? We don't want to be that. Then the last one. Again, comes back to some ruler principles here. It's unwise to curse those who can control your life because a bird will tell on you. Verse 20 says, Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Do you ever let somebody know that you know something about them and they don't know that you know and they want to know how they how you know and you just say oh little bird told me well that's apparently that maybe where this that phrase came from is right out of here in ecclesiastes but it's pretty much the same be careful with the people who can control your life um, make discretion the better part of valor better part of wisdom with earthly leaders because the rich who have a great deal of influence um, don't say a word against them even in your the privacy of your bedroom. Don't even think about cursing kings, it says. Because if you do, don't be surprised if there's trouble. Um, these leaders have ways of finding out and uh, walls have ears. It's amazing. And, you know, you think about that and it's like, you know, you understand what Solomon is saying, and we know that you know our words can just definitely come back to haunt us when they are found out by you know the ones that we didn't want to know what we were saying and so on. But I think here maybe just a good question to ask is: Do you criticize those in authority over you more than you pray for them? And I think that's a good thing to think about. What the what our words should be saying regarding those in authority, even those that we have struggles with. We should be praying for them, asking God to help them to be wise and not fools and helping us to be wise in our interaction with them. So we come to the end of this section. And as you can see, it definitely was a lot of different, ran, could say random thoughts, but still, you know, there is a way of wisdom. There is a way of foolishness. So why is the preacher talking about fools? Well, it's easy to be one. 
And so he wants us to be, be aware of that. It's dangerous to be one. It's not a good thing to be a fool. And if this is our path of life, it can have eternal consequences. It can have eternal consequences. And I think we have to ask ourselves, am I living wisely or foolishly? Is my life a fragrance of perfume or a stench of dead flies? And for those who would be here today, and maybe you would say, you know, I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm not a Christian. I I know that. Um, You need to realize that the wisdom of God, the way that inclines the wise, you know, the way of the wise that inclines to the right, that way of wisdom begins with understanding that wisdom begins with Christ. And I just remind us of a verse that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He says, Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. Christ came to, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And we invite you, we plead with you, to accept Jesus Christ as the one who died to provide payment for your sin and who rose again to show that sin and death have been defeated. And if you will put your trust in Christ, um, you can have that hope of eternal life. And you will no longer be on the road of the fool, but you will be on the right path, the way of wisdom. And for those of us who are believers in Christ, I think we have to admit, don't we, that we sometimes act like fools. We veer to the left instead of to the right. We don't follow the path of wisdom and our little bit of folly outweighs, outsmells our wisdom, our fragrance of wisdom. And I just encourage us as God brings those areas where we know we are leaning toward the folly instead of toward the way of wisdom that we repent of that and ask God to help us to walk in the right way. And my prayer is for all of us that the fragrance of wisdom will permeate our lives as we seek to walk with God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and for more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.